Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast for November 2009. My name is George Miller, and coming up later in this programme, an interview with Marcus Chown, former radio astronomer and now award-winning writer and broadcaster. I'll be talking to him about We Need to Talk About Kelvin, which reveals the cosmic wonders in the everyday. But what we don't realise is, in fact, the, the atom is incredibly empty. I mean, Tom Stoppard had this great image where he said that if the nucleus at the centre of the atom were like the uh, altar at the centre of the dome of St Paul's Cathedral, then the electrons were like kind of moths just fluttering around by the dome. So there's an incredible amount of empty space. How do you get your head around that? My first guest today is renowned biographer and historian Jenny Uglow, whose previous books include Lives of Hogarth, Elizabeth Gaskell and Thomas Buick, and her group portrait of the Lunar Men, the Birmingham Society of Amateur Scientists and Inventors, who in the 18th century helped pave the way for the modern world. Jenny's new book is called A Gambling Man, Charles II and the Restoration. She writes in the prologue that it's a challenge for someone like me, whose sympathies lie with the radicals and the artisans, protesting about the abuse of power, to venture into the centre, the heart of power. So, I asked her, what had prompted this apparent departure? It's a sort of complicated move backwards, I suppose, in that when I was writing about the lunar men, I became fascinated by the Royal Society and the demonstrators that went out and so on, and then looking at the members of the early Royal Society really interested in the 60s, 60s, and seeing how things had changed. And also, though it doesn't seem really relevant, I was terribly moved in by 1989 when the Eastern Bloc countries sort of all came out on the streets and there was a new regime and there was this extraordinary sort of atmosphere of hope and things will change. And I thought, well, how much did things change in the Restoration? And became more and more interested and then realised that actually at that point everything is still circling around the figure of the king, all the hopes and expectations and disappointments and whatever. And so it came from there and it, it, it Charles, as it were, moved because he's the man of that era moved into the centre. So you decided not to write a conventional biography, you decided to focus on a decade about through the, mm. the prism of, of Charles. Yes, I did. It's quite hard thinking back to remember how, the ship, how a book takes shape. But it did seem that in terms of meeting those expectations and fighting particular battles, that decade, the history of Britain for that particular period was sort of set on a course and also in Charles's own life it's the centre of his life at 30 to 40 and somehow it sort of summed up everything he'd come from so he, he behaved that, that way because of his past traumatic past and his own personality and then after that he he too was sort of set on a on a course so it was like a great kind of if you entered, you would be able to see all the way around. And you call the book a gambling man, and I wondered, and that, that's a, a trope that runs all the way through the book, I wondered, was that something which was present from the beginning, or did that gradually emerge from the, from the evidence as you read? The idea of a gambling man, or calling him a gambling man, wasn't present from the beginning, but it was present when I looked at the way he behaved, and... And, and the choices he made and the way that he never quite let people see what was in his head and I think it just happened it's often like that with book titles you, you're you working away or putting these together 
and you say, well, what are you writing? Oh, I'm writing about this with a gambling man or something, and then it it becomes the book, and without one knowing it, you've got a you've realised you've you've worked out a a clue or a way of uh, approaching it. Charles returns to England just short of his 30th birthday. And I, you mentioned a moment ago mm. the things which had shaped him. Can you say a little bit more about the, the infancies which you think were important before he got back to England yes. uh, in 1660? I tried to talk about his past really while he's on the boat coming across from Holland to England and um, recreating himself as a new person, as the as a king, which he never expected to be. And all those influences that have built up on his past, his idyllic childhood in Whitehall with Charles I and Henrietta Maria suddenly being taken away. So the the memories plus the sudden uncertainties and knowledge of death and war and then the exile and the poverty and the charm that he had to employ, which had turned out to be a very effective weapon. But also he'd been a poor relation in France where his much younger cousin, Louis the Fourteenth, was rising to become a grand and extravagant and autocratic, indeed absolute monarch. And there's some envy of that. I think Charles would quite have liked to be that. He came back with that. But he'd also been uh, with his sister, Mary, who was married to Will- William of Orange Sr., as it were, in, in Holland. So he'd been familiar with problems, as it were, of the Dutch Republic, but also the new ideas, the new science and mathematics in Paris, Descartes, Gassendi, microscopes, telescopes, everything in Leiden. So he came back to England with a, a set of new ideas, but also a very strong sense of the glory or dignity of the old regime. But he didn't really have a model because things clearly couldn't operate no. in the way that they had operated before. But he didn't, there was, there was no model he could turn to and think, well, that's, that's the kind of monarch that I need to be. There was no model. I mean, Europe actually very, very diverse. It went from absolute monarchies to republics. But also with the death of his father in 1649, the very fact of the execution of the monarch somehow removed some aura of divinity from monarchy. And in practical terms, many things had been abolished, the feudal dues, which actually the monarch could call on for finance. And when Charles came back, he had to find a way of working with Parliament, who had voted to call him back, and also who now held the purse strings. So he was in a completely new situation. He was allegedly the monarch who summed up the whole of the country as were in his person. But actually, in order to rule the country, he was dependent on Parliament. And you mentioned the, the purse strings there, and it's clear all the way through that cash is a really important issue. And, you know, running his court is not a not an inexpensive business. Cash is vital. And it's running the country and running his court and his private life. And he certainly was extravagant. And his mistresses were extravagant. And he wanted to set up separate establishments for his wife and he married Catherine of Braganza. But it wasn't simply court extravagance. I mean, he actually had to pay the civil service. He had to pay the army. He had to pay the navy. And the taxes that were raised were hopelessly insufficient. 
it's the first time that a monarch called on Parliament in peacetime and Parliament tried to work out a sort of formula which would say how much it cost to run the country. But first of all, their, their estimate was far too low. And secondly, they didn't even raise the taxes to fill that low estimate. So Charles was constantly in debt, constantly begging for money. Tell me a little bit more about the court, because on one hand, you've got the extravagance and the balls and the masks and so on. But you also show a sort of darker side of the court where reputations were delicate things and women in particular mm-hmm. found it very hard to establish themselves and the dueling and so on. So what, yeah. what, kind of, what kind of environment do you think the court really was? The court's fascinating and it is a dangerous place. The court centres on Whitehall in London, which itself was a huge rambling palace. And it's very hierarchical in the household. There are these sort of intimate servants, the gentlemen of the bedchamber, and then there are grooms of the bedchamber, and there are pages of the bedchamber, and they're little tight circles, and they all know each other's gossip. And when the women come, because they come as the same sort of attendants to the Queen or to the Duchess of York, as it happened, they're immediately sort of eyed up, because the court when Charles arrived was actually quite a kind of laddish place with its own language and yes people got drunk they gambled they dueled but more than that they're like a little sort of closed group with their own jokes and and so forth and then women entering get sort of pounced upon i mean they're seen as as little sort of tidbits for the for the courtiers so it was very hard to maintain a your reputation which which was vital to do so so It's a friendly place to a certain degree, but there's also a sense of jockeying for position because the ruling at this point too is also done from the court. It's like a private cabinet. There's the parliament and there's the Privy Council, which is the official committee body to rule the country. But then Charles's gentlemen of the bedchamber the bedchamber was his most intimate place where he could talk directly they had tremendous power so there's a lot of jockeying positions to to get in there with the king you describe charles's sex life i think as both a bonus and a drawback Mm. and i suppose that relates to perceptions of the king and he was he was a monarch who was very conscious of how he was perceived How, how did the sex life play into that it played into the idea of the monarch in an interesting way. He, he, when he came back to um, England, he was 30. He was very tall, six foot two. He was tremendously good looking. He was very athletic, very physical. And the number of mistresses that he'd had seemed like, you know, quite a good thing because they proved not only that he was sexy, but he was virile, he was potent. And some of that energy was going to flow into the country. And then he married Catherine of Braganza, but already there were problems because he had a powerful mistress, Barbara Villiers, uh, who was a direct rival to the Queen. This wasn't really widely known for a time, but it did become known. And then when he also fell in love with another mistress and the gossip sort of got going, it became very easy to start blaming the court and particularly blaming Charles's adulterous ways for all the disasters that were falling because his own queen Catherine of Ganza had no children 
but the mistresses did. So it seemed like a curse of God. So instead of the virility being a good thing, it became a bad thing. And then also, I mean, there were more stories still, you know, that during times of crisis, he just uh, uh, became impotent altogether. I mean, he actually lost that potency and was a sort of limp, feeble figure. It's, it's very fascinating and very uh, sort of alarming, the frankness with which people actually talked about what the king was getting up to hmm. in bed. Sometimes he seemed to be, his mind seemed to be completely on pleasures and not on affairs yeah. of state at all. But then when the great fire comes, he he was behaving like you might expect a, you know, a modern day sleeves rolled up kind of engaged monarch, yes. which really surprised me, the fact that he was out there taking charge and involved in the, um, yeah. trying to stop the fire. Yes, he, he was a very intelligent man and his ministers called him lazy. In fact, if you actually look at the way he ruled the country he was quick and he was sort of ruthless and he didn't like to be seen in action he would actually manage to get his ministers to do the things he wanted to do but that mind was really working and so I think that that's when when you get the fire he actually steps forward himself because it's absolutely typical of Charles to get the reports to immediately go and see go up river to see what is happening and then they and then to organise, I mean, to set up rings of outposts of firefighters, to organise for, as it were, refugees, for food to come in from different places, people to be looked after, and actually to go round to the firefighters and talk to them and rouse them. And then with that same physical, energetic young self too, he and the Duke of York did literally stand in line with buckets up to their ankles in water and their sleeves rolled up and fight the fire. And it wasn't at all an act, nor was it a piece of propaganda. I think that's a moment that Charles genuinely cared and was terrified for the sort of fate of his his city. In terms of the, the intellectual climate of that decade, you mentioned the Royal Society and it was a decade of philosophy and writing of all sorts and questioning. That's, that's something which comes up. Do you, do you think his restoration enabled something to happen or was it something which was already happening in any case? To what extent did the restoration play a part in the intellectual developments? The restoration played a huge part in the intellectual developments because although both in science or even in theatre or in writing things were happening all over the place, what happened when Charles came back was that people flocked to the capital. It's that coming together of different groups so that, say, people who'd been working on experimental research in Cambridge, in Oxford and in London actually met together. Or the reopening of the theatres had been sort of different companies in different places. It all came together. And to actually have a figure who could patronise them, who could say, this is the Royal Society, you know, this is the King's Theatre, gave it a... Uh, great boost so the restoration didn't cause this change in ideas but it focused and crystallized and gave it terrific impetus now what about religion because religion is a mm. is a thread that runs through the decade and indeed well indeed the, the, the century and and beyond and it seemed to me that there was a there was an opportunity there was a moment there when dissenters could have been and catholics could have yeah. been sort of incorporated into the body politic, the whole fabric of society, and that, that moment yes. came and went. 
Yeah. So to what extent do you think that was a genuine opportunity or would that, was, that, was that never going to happen? I think it was never going to happen, but the... Because, Charles, because that was one of Charles's yeah. kind of, in his manifesto, as it were, wasn't yes, that he was going yes. to heal that. Yes. When, when um, Charles was in Breda before he came back to England and he made this declaration and one of the things he promised was what was called liberty to tender consciences so that the Puritan inhabitants, the Presbyterians, the members of the sects would welcome him just as much as the Anglicans and so forth. And he really, he and his advisers, really did think that they would be able to effect a compromise in two ways. First of all, they thought they would be able to set up an established church with the with the return of the monarch there would be a church of england of which he would be the supreme head as there always had been well, since henry the eighth and that this church would embrace both the traditional anglicans and the presbyterians who'd been the church of the commonwealth by things like organizing congregations through synods who there would be a bishop but they could work together instead of the bishop being the high and mighty and so on. So they thought they would be able to do that and to alter the service and maybe you didn't have to wear surplices, you didn't have to do things that the Presbyterians considered Catholic ritual. And at the same time, the people who didn't want to belong to an established church, whether it be Quakers or Baptists or the Roman Catholics, would be allowed to worship in their own way. So one is comprehension, bringing people into the church, and the other is toleration, tolerating these different sects. And uh, there was a conference uh, two or three months after Charles got back, at which they tried to hammer out this kind of agreement. There was a powerful Bishop of London and then Archbishop of Canterbury, Bishop Sheldon, who was very much against this, who mobilised people, the bishops and the clergy wanted their livings back that they'd had in the good old days. There was a huge sense among the partisan gentry, they wanted the old ways back. And I think Charles, to his astonishment, found himself up against a far stronger reactionary movement than he had ever expected. And although negotiations went on, the end result was the expulsion of uh, dissenting ministers from the Church of England and a complete rift which lasted for a century and a half. Maybe, Jenny, I can ask you finally, how easy or difficult did you find it to to capture Charles the man? Because Mm. he seems to have masks and is obviously a public actor. But at this remove, how possible is it to get close to Charles the man? Well, uh, who knows? <laughs> you can get close to Charles the man externally. It's, it's almost as if you're standing behind him, looking not at him, but looking in a mirror because of the way people react to him. You know, the way he has terrific charm and charisma. He'll talk directly to you. You're the most important person in the world. He's also funny. He's impatient. He's risk he takes people by surprise and so on he drives some ministers mad he's lazy so you can build up that picture of what it's like living with him but he was very careful not to give himself away he does sometimes and there's a flash of anger or a flash of passion and then you hope that someone's on hand whether it be Clarendon or Pepys or to actually scribble it down but I think watching him move through time in an odd way and seeing 
what he does and how his attitudes change is the closest you get to Charles the Man and you see somebody grappling with difficulties but also sometimes just shutting themselves off and deciding that you know they they can't cope it's a perfectly human thing or they can and they don't give a damn what people think about them and, and so on so you can get close but you you never have a, a confessional you never have a the man himself pouring his heart out to you Jenny Ugler a gambling man Charles II in the Restoration is out now in hardback my second guest today is radio astronomer turned writer and broadcaster Marcus Chan. Marcus is currently cosmology consultant for New Scientist, and he's also the author of several highly successful popular science titles, all available from Faber. These include, and you can tell that Marcus has a talent for titles, The Never-Ending Days of Being Dead, Quantum Theory Cannot Hurt You, and now we need to talk about Kelvin. This new book starts with everyday experiences as simple as seeing your face reflected in a window pane and shows that many things we take entirely for granted provide clues to how our universe works at the deepest level. It makes for a fascinating journey. I asked Marcus to tell me more about tackling the great discoveries of science through the examples of the everyday. Well, I live a kind of double life as, as an author. Uh, most of the time I, I, I work at home, don't really talk to anyone, have a really quiet life, me and the goldfish. And then you, then you come to the kind of publication phase where you go out and you uh, uh, meet lots of people in a mad rush. Uh, whereas you've actually written a large explanation of, of something, you know, that's maybe thousands of words along, you're, you're faced with like one and a half minutes to explain it. And, and so I kind of like grasp for some kind of everyday example, everyday object to, to relate what I'm, what I'm, you know, what, what I want to explain to, you know, the cosmic thing I'm trying to explain. And I remember I was doing a talk in Edinburgh and I was trying to explain why we have quantum theory. You know, what, what, why, why, what, where did that come from? Quantum theory is our, our very best theory of the microscopic world of atoms and their constituents, and it kind of overthrew all the physics that came before. And I was trying to think, what, what, what was the conflict that triggered that, that theory? And, and it occurred to me that it was simply that we have a theory of matter, which says that matter is made of atoms, tiny little indivisible grains, and we have a theory of light. And the theory of light says that light is a wave, pretty much like a, a ripple on a pond. And the one thing you know about uh, ripples on a pond is they're kind of spread out. They take up a lot of space, but atoms are tiny, tiny things. And so I, I, I realized that actually when uh, an atom gives out light, which is of course what happens in a filament of a light bulb, or when uh, light is absorbed by an atom, which happens in your eye, it turns out that the light waves are something like 50,000 times bigger than the atoms. So it's very much like an atom spitting out a, a light wave is pretty much like opening a matchbox and that comes a 40 tonne truck. Or alternatively, an atom absorbing light is pretty much, you know, you know, you've got a matchbox, you take it out your pocket, you open it, and a 40 tonne truck can drive into it. So here's the conflict, that's the conflict. That is the, that is the paradox that hit physics in the, in the late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. How could they reconcile these two theories? Because you know, they, they just, uh, it's interface between light and matter, they conflict and they say impossible things. And of course the resolution turns out to be that actually light is not a wave, it's actually a particle. So it's actually, uh, it streams through space as a series of, of tiny little bullets, and we call them photons. 
and so that, that that's that's what actually happens that the photons are pretty much the size of atoms but there's there's more to it than that because it turns out that light is also a wave you know so we can't abandon that old picture and it's simultaneously a light and a wave and this is where physics departs really from our intuition because we have to accept that that light is something for which we have no we have no word in our vocabulary and we have no picture of anything in our everyday world which can can really give us tell us what light is in its entirety you go back to the greeks and you show that this impulse to to use metaphors and to relate the known to the unknown or to explain the unknown by means of the known is a very long lasting human impulse but i suppose what's happened in the last few decades is as you're saying that the tools are, are becoming more and more worn it's becoming more and more difficult because the concepts are becoming more and more alien to to be related to the normal yeah. everyday life that we have around us and i see that i see that as actually happening it was a crucial moment in, in the late 19th century when this actually happened we remember that newton came up with a picture of the world a clockwork picture you know i mean we had these laws of gravity or whatever we if we know where the moon is today we know exactly where it is tomorrow you know we use newton's laws of motion his law of gravity we can predict you know it's a clockwork universe and uh, these were the models that, that the pictures the images that, that physicists tended to use to understand the world until they came up really we're talking about mid 19th century when they were trying to understand electricity and magnetism and the great scottish physicist james clark maxwell was trying to understand magnetism i mean we all know if we get a magnet and we put it near some iron filings there's some kind of mysterious force that reaches out through the space and touches and, or, and, and tugs on the, the iron filing so he was trying to think how could that happen and he thought well maybe there are little cogs you know, invisible cogs between the magnet and the iron filing so you know that the magnet somehow turns a little tooth cog which turns another tooth cog and eventually it touches the iron filing so that's how it, how a force reaches through empty space but it didn't work his picture didn't work so he then thought well maybe the cogs maybe they're kind of springy you've got all these springy cogs one turns that you know one turns it turns the next one and eventually he threw up his hands in despair and gave up completely and realized that there was no picture there was no mechanical picture and what what really was around the magnet was what we call a magnetic field this is a kind of a, a force field an invisible force field a tension in space and the magnet creates this force field and it spreads through space and it's the force field that actually touches the the iron filing so at this point he, he you know physics actually detached itself from physical pictures and we realized that, that la nature's language is actually a mathematical language a language of force fields and really that was a, a critical moment in the history of physics because if you look at the physics that came after that we are talking about atoms which can be in two places at once we're talking about Einstein's theory of gravity which where gravity is actually the curvature of four-dimensional space-time we cannot ever get our heads around four-dimensional space-time because we are three-dimensional creatures and the current theory which is creating a lot of excitement is called string theory where we see the fundamental building blocks of matter as tiny little vibrating violin strings but they live in ten dimensions we've really given up on on trying to explain nature in terms of things which are like the the things that we see in the everyday world but in retrospect why should nature be like the everyday world i mean you know our intuition is, is as was developed um, you know, millions of years ago on, on the African plains, when we, you know, we had to survive with, you know, lions and, and vicious creatures, so we, we, we had to be able to run, we had to be able to see to the horizon, we had to hit here, 
reasonably well, but nature and, and natural selection did not equip us with senses to sense the atomic world mm. or the world of galaxies or whatever. So to me, it's not surprising that those worlds are counterintuitive. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting point you made about how we've evolved and, you know, we're, we're equipped for foraging and running, but we're not equipped. We find it difficult to cope with the very large and the very small, let alone multidimensionality, don't we? The problems start quite quickly once you get to a certain order of magnitude, you know, to the power of 10, then yeah. most of us have difficulty grasping that. We do. And, and you know, I'm not going to uh, pretend that I can grasp the vastness of the universe. But as a kid, uh, I was always fascinated by the bigness of it. And I was always trying to get my head around it. And I do, I do think that children are fascinated by this. This is why they're interested in dinosaurs and things. You know, big things really fascinate kids. So uh, I'm, I'm constantly trying to get my head around it. But unfortunately, we, we, you know, we, we, we cannot, in, in, in the end, ever do it. I do remember trying to, for an article I wrote for New Scientist magazine, I remember trying to figure out, I was trying to imagine how big the universe was. And the universe is populated by galaxies. They're the building blocks of the universe. And there are about 100 billion of them. We live in one. It's called the Milky Way. I, I do remember thinking, well, if the universe was about a kilometre, it was a sphere about a kilometre across, then the 100 billion galaxies floating in that sphere would be each about the size of an aspirin. Mm. Our Milky Way uh, is in a group of galaxies called the local group, contains about 30 galaxies, only one other big galaxy, it's called Andromeda, you can see it in the skies if you know where to look, and it's about 13 centimetres away, another aspirin. And the, the nearest cluster of galaxies is the Virgo cluster of galaxies. And that's about the size of a basketball and it's about three metres away. So I began to get some kind of picture. Actually, the universe is not really big compared to galaxies. Atoms are very small compared to us, but galaxies are actually pretty big compared to the, the universe that we're in. And that tells you something interesting about galaxies. They must collide a lot. And when we actually look back with the Hubble Space Telescope, we, we, when we look at great distance, we look, we're seeing back in time, we see galaxies which are very, very different to the ones today. So we can see that collisions and mergers and things like that have had a big role to play in the evolution of galaxies like our Milky Way. That really is one of the, the ways we can begin to grasp these ideas, isn't it? By using scale, scaling up and scaling down, because otherwise we are, we are all adrift. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's what we do. And uh, in, in one of my books, I was trying to get my head around the emptiness of atoms, uh, and I do mention it in, in the current book as well. We all have this picture in our mind of uh, an atom, pretty much like uh, a solar system, you know, with a little tight nucleus at the centre of an atom, a bit of not of mass, pretty much like the sun, with uh, electrons flying around, flitting around, pretty much like planets around the sun. But what we don't realise is, in fact, the, the atom is incredibly empty. I mean, Tom Stoppard had this great image where he said that if the nucleus at the centre of the atom were like the uh, altar at the centre of the dome of St Paul's Cathedral, then the electrons were like kind of moths just fluttering around by the dome. So there's an incredible amount of empty space. How do you get your head around that? And really the metaphor I came up with is, is that if you squeezed all the empty space out of atoms, if you squeezed all the empty space out of the atoms of, of the whole human race, you could fit the entire human race in the volume of sugar cube. And that really just shows you how amazingly empty mm. empty space is. I mean, we are ghosts. Then, of course, the question is, why is matter, which seems so solid, so empty? And the answer to that is quantum theory, because it turns out that the building blocks of matter have this strange kind of dual quality. They 
simultaneously can behave as kind of localized little particles and spread out waves. And a, a wave is something that does take up, it, it takes up a lot of room, it needs a lot of elbow room. And the electrons in the atom need a lot of elbow room because they are fundamentally waves. And that's why they need this vast amount of, of, of space and why atoms are so empty. So what you do in this book, Marcus, is you take everyday familiar phenomena, things we're all familiar with, we may not even think about, you know, seeing your own reflection in a pane of glass, and you show how these everyday phenomena relate to some of the really big, interesting, tough questions of science. Yeah, absolutely. The idea from this book came from publicising my last book, when I suddenly thought, when I go on radio programmes, or uh, I'm constantly you know, grasping for this everyday thing, which I can relate the cosmic thing I'm talking about to. And then it suddenly occurred to me, well, why don't I write a book where I just do that? And it, it was a thread on which I could hang all these, all, these, uh, all these stories. It's subtitled, What Everyday Things Tell Us About the Universe. But of course, it's what everyday things tell us about the universe, knowing what we know today. I mean, you know, we, we do, you do need a little bit of background, and a caveman would not have come to the same conclusion, you know. But, but one of the things that's striking is your reflection in a window pane. If you, if you look through a window, you can see the scene outside, maybe you can see the traffic outside, but you can also see a faint reflection of your face. And that's because glass is not completely you know, it doesn't transmit 100% of light. Maybe it transmits 95% of light and maybe 5% gets reflected back from the surface so you see a reflection of your face. How do you, how do you understand that? Because it turns out we discovered in the uh, 20th century that light was a stream of bullet-like particles, machine gun bullets called photons, all identical. Well, how can you explain 95% being, being transmitted and 5% being reflected if they're all identical? I mean, they must all surely be affected identically by the glass. They must all go through and must all come back. And the person who, who really came up with the idea of the photon, who invented the photon, was Albert Einstein. And he was the person who realised that this observation, that you could actually see your face and you could also see outside of, uh, you know, of a window, was an earth-shattering observation. And it was, a, it was a bombshell in physics. No one else really saw it for a long time. Because what it means is that you have, you have to actually assume that each of the photons has a 95% chance of going through the, the window and a 5% chance of being reflected. So you have to allow randomness, unpredictability, into the heart of physics. And remember that physics was, was until, until that time, was a recipe for predicting the future. That's what physics is. So we know where the moon is today, we can predict where it is tomorrow. We just use, use the laws of physics to do that. But what Einstein realised is that the concept of the photon brings right into the heart of the phys physics the idea of randomness. If we were to follow an individual photon, a single photon, as it, as it headed towards a window pane, we would not be able to tell ahead of time whether that would be transmitted or reflected. We would only know that if we, if we shot 100, 95 would go through and 105 would come back. So it's fundamentally unpredictable. And as Einstein famously said, God does not play dice with the universe. Uh, unfortunately, he turned out to be wrong because God does play dice with, with the universe. And it's not simply photons, it's every single denizen of the uh, microscopic world, the atoms that you're made of, the particles they're made of, they all behave in this random fashion. This is probably the most shocking discovery in the history of science that actually you can see just by looking at your face in a window pane.
But there's a, there's a kind of frisson of excitement and pleasure, though, when you sort of pull these familiar rugs out from under the reader, I think, just sort of saying, ha-ha, you think you understand this, but in fact, it's a, there's a lot more going on here, and it involves these things like randomness and unpredictability. Yeah, and probably it, it, takes, it takes a bit for, for you to actually appreciate what it, what it really means, and that's why Einstein realised how shocking it was, but nobody else did. Because we're talking about real randomness, I mean, all the randomness that we think that, that the everyday world is not real randomness. A, a ball goes around a roulette wheel. You think you think that the the number it finishes on is random. It isn't random. You know, if you knew the velocity and, and direction at which you threw the at which the, the the ball was tossed, if you if you knew the drafts that in in the casino, if you knew all the conditions, with, and you had a big enough computer, you could work out the outcome. Because it turns out that the things that we think of as random are only random in, in practice, not in principle. That we could, if, you know, if we were if we were dull and boring enough, if we had a big enough computer, we could predict the outcome, and that's true of absolutely everything in our world. But this is irreducible randomness. This is randomness that it wouldn't matter how big a computer you had, it wouldn't matter how many. If you knew all the conditions <coughs> which were affecting a photon or an electron or an atom, you would never be able to predict the outcome. It, it's just not possible. It, you know, the universe is not constructed in that way. And that's why it's, it, it is quite shocking. The, the next question is, if the universe is fundamentally unpredictable, how come it appears to be predictable for us? I mean, how come that I know with quite a bit of certainty that the sun will rise tomorrow? You know, that I can, my, I can live a life where I can predict things that will happen. And the answer is that what nature takes away with one hand, it grudgingly gives back with the other. Because it turns out that although the universe is fundamentally unpredictable, the unpredictability is predictable. And well, expand, on, expand on that for me. Quantum theory <coughs> is a theory which predicts the unpredictability. So, for instance, we can know um, that, that if an atom is flying through space, it has a 25% chance of going in this direction, and a 25% chance of going in that direction, and a 50% chance of going. So, so we actually can know with precision what the chance is. What we can't know is actually what it will do. So we, we, as I say, the universe is unpredictable, but we have a recipe for, pr for predicting the unpredictability. And that recipe is quantum theory. And it turns out that being able to predict the unpredictability is enough. It's enough to create a world where we do actually pretty much know in most circumstances what's going to happen. I was talking to Marcus Chan about We Need to Talk About Kelvin, which is out now. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but there's lots more audio material on the Faber website at faber.co.uk, and you can subscribe to this podcast by going to iTunes and typing Faber in the search box. The next Faber podcast will be a crime special. I'll be talking to Nicola Upson about Angel with Two Faces, a detective novel set in Cornwall in the 1930s, and Tobias Jones about his first foray into crime, the Salati case, set in the fog of a northern Italian winter. Until next time. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.